0: Thanks for tuning in to Women in Product Marketing. I'm your host, Mary Sheehan with Adobe. For those of you that are new to the pod, we explore the world of product marketing through the lens of the women who run it at some of the fastest growing technology companies in the world. Shout out to our sponsor, Clue. You're losing 30% of your deals to your competitors. Not cool. That competitive revenue gap is costing your business millions of dollars. So how do you tip the scale in your favor? Clue's competitive enablement platform makes it simple for product marketers and compete pros to give their revenue teams the exact right intel at the exact right time. Positioning, messaging, objection handling, and FUD, Clue shares real-time competitive insights in the places your reps already live. and makes it easy for them to contribute insights from the field. All right, let's do this. Hello, and welcome to Women in Product Marketing. Today, I have the pleasure to interview Jackie Palmer, the VP of Product and Industry Marketing at Demandbase. She is an expert in pricing, analyst relations, messaging and positioning, and strategy, and has been a leader at many companies, including Conga, SAP, Teradata, and more. Interestingly, Jackie made the switch from product management to product marketing, and I can't wait for you all to hear more about her experience today. Welcome, Jackie. Happy to have you here. Thank you, Mary, so much. I'm thrilled to be here. Well, let's start off with our first question of this season, which goes deep, and it's can you share a time when you failed at something either personally or professionally?
1: Yeah. And you gave me the questions ahead of time, I was like, oh gosh, do I want to share a personal experience or a professional experience? And I mean, they're kind of interrelated, you know, I feel like as you grow through your career, they get interrelated. And so the one that I sort of came up with, that's the one that I regret most is back when I was just sort of getting started in really making that shift, as you mentioned, from product management to product marketing, I was given the request from my executive team to sort of put together a strategic business case for the product area that I was focusing on. And I tried to do this as best I could, having not done one before and having a manager at the time that was not very supportive in terms of like what, kinds of things should you put into this business case? Should this be more product management focused or strategic product marketing focused? Because at that time, I was, like I said, playing kind of two halves and wearing both hats and I didn't get a lot of direction. And we ultimately ended up sort of failing, basically. We didn't get any more investment for that product line. It stagnated for a a year after that. And I ultimately ended up leaving that company probably sort of due to that, but I realized looking back on it over the years, that while I did fail, obviously, personally with that, I also failed because I didn't reach out for the support that I needed. I didn't know how to reach out for the support that I needed. And I didn't have that support structure in place. And so as I've moved forward in my career, I've really sort of taken a life lesson from it that says you need to support the people on your team and the people that you work with to Make sure that they know the types of things that they want that you need from them. You shouldn't be given an assignment without having clear direction. You shouldn't be given an assignment without having somebody to bounce something off of, um, especially a particularly strategic and important assignment, like a business case for further
0: investment in a product area, right? Wow. Well, thank you for sharing something so real. And I just, it hurts my heart. I had Doesn't a similar it? experience. And <laughs> at the time and i think this is you know true of many women we sort of take it on ourselves and it's a failure a personal failure but in hindsight many years later maybe even sometimes you're realizing wow, I was actually not set up for success here. Exactly. (laughs) Good life lesson to share there. And you're
1: absolutely right, because unfortunately it happens more than you'd like to admit to women because we don't necessarily always ask for the help that we think that we deserve. We don't think that we deserve that help. And it really is something that I've tried to support other women with over the years since that life lesson and tried not to run into myself again as well.
0: That's such a great lesson to share. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you going there right away. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Let's just rip off the band-aid, right? (laughs) Well,
0: tell us about your role now, many years later, VP of product and industry marketing at Demandbase. I'd love to hear more about what the role entails of industry marketing too, and Demandbase, of course.
1: Yes. So Demandbase is what we like to call a go-to-market solution or solution for go-to-market teams. So product that helps both marketing and salespeople find the capabilities that they need to both target accounts, focus on accounts, sort of really go after the right people for your company's products or services. As part of that, we have our product marketing team that I manage and we roll up into marketing. I've done it both ways, rolling up into product, rolling up into marketing, and I have Various different opinions on that, but I'm sure you've talked to other guests in the past. But we roll up into marketing and we actually have industry marketing as part of my purview as well. So we've got financial services and manufacturing are are our biggest ones. We have high tech as our largest industry, but we don't really have a dedicated industry focus specifically on high tech because so much of our customer base is is high tech. So we have a dedicated industry focus on manufacturing and financial services.
0: That's so cool. Thank you so much for going into more details on that. I would love to dive a little bit more into the product management versus mm-hmm. product marketing conversation, not versus, but how you made that transition. I've heard a few people doing that and we've had a few on the show that have talked about that, but can you tell us a little bit more about what went into that decision and how you yeah, really framed it?
1: Absolutely. And I find many companies, whether it's a a small company that just doesn't have the budget for both roles or whether it's a large company that, you know, I was working for a company that was 10,000 people and every couple of years we had budget and we didn't have budget, like depending on how well we were doing or who was in charge at the time and which sort of circle ran things. We either had dedicated budget for a separate product marketing department or we absorbed some of the product marketers into the product management organization and did more external facing product management is what some people call it. And so over time, as I went from either company to company or grew up in my management approach, I started to realize that more of my time was being spent on external facing things, working with sales, working with analyst relations, working with our externally oriented marketing teams. And I started to sort of think to myself, well, that's actually more product marketing. And so once I left, I was at the company that I mentioned that went back and forth on having this dedicated product marketing team versus an external facing product management person. I was working for them for a while. And once I decided I wanted to leave that company, I started looking for a product marketing dedicated position and have been in that role ever since. Although my time at SAP was actually an interesting one as well. They had a three-pronged stool. So they had product marketing, they had what was called solution marketing, and then they had product management. And so I ran solution marketing or solution management as we sometimes called it as well.
0: That's so interesting. So essentially you found yourself drawn to that kind of work more, doing that kind of external facing work more and thought, why not focus the career path? Exactly. With, awesome. yeah.
1: And a lot of the external facing things started to take shape of delivering customer roadmaps, starting to, to drive that more strategic conversation around where we should focus from a messaging perspective. And then working with the analysts and all of that end up gearing me more towards that external side of the house, which was product marketing.
0: Now that you're on this side of the house, as far as product marketing, is there anything that you draw from your product management experience that helps you build the relationship and influence product? That's a topic we talk about a lot on the show is how does product marketing build a stronger partnership with product? Do you have any advice there from your experience?
1: Yeah, just from my experience being a product manager, the more that you can get in deep with product management the more they will trust you. I think that in general, the experience I've had is that product marketers have usually no problem building that trust and relationship with marketers, right? Even if you don't sit in the marketing department, I've just found it's easier to build that relationship with the marketing team. I don't know why, but It just seems to come more naturally. So the more difficult relationships that I've found from a product marketing perspective are with product or with sales. And so those are the ones you really have to work harder on. So whether you sit in product with product management or whether you sit in marketing with marketing, either way, you're still having to be more intentional and more thoughtful about those relationships with product management and with sales because sales, face it, they like to go off on their own. And they don't want to stay and toe the party line and, and use your decks and things like that. So that's a more difficult relationship, but maybe in a different way. With product management, you really need to sort of, in some ways, prove your value. And so I feel that what I talk to my product marketers about is that they should really be tied at the hip with their product managers and really make sure that they are understanding what are the pain points that those product managers are going through and seeing and how can they provide value? So what kinds of things are they able to research and get from competitors or from articles that they've found or from customers that they've talked to or prospects that they've talked to or deals that they've even heard about on Gong? So what are you bringing to the relationship? And I think to have a tight product management and product marketing relationship, you both have to bring something, but the product marketer often feels like they need to prove their value more than I think the other way around, right?
0: At least at the beginning. And that's at least at the beginning. Yeah. Thanks for giving some real brass tacks around that too. I think it's so important to figure out what they need, what you can help them really understand, proving that value, building that trust to set that solid relationship. And I kind of use as a indirect barometer. Are they showing up to our meetings? Are they right. coming to our one-on-ones? Are they meeting with my team members? You know, and, and if there's not, there's something broken there and we need to understand what they think they should be getting for product marketing and what they're not. Or if they have no idea, which is kind of the case, you need to go above and beyond and bring that, exactly. that market intelligence to them. So thank you for sharing that. That's really great to hear it from someone that has been on both sides of the house. So appreciate yeah. that. Absolutely. So you recently wrote an article on product-led growth about helping that self-serve buyer. And maybe this is also coming from your product experience and product marketing combined, but I really loved it. And one of the things that stuck out to me was that you are actually sharing the price of the product externally for the first time ever using a tool called the price estimator. Can you talk a little bit about the process, PLG, it's such a hot topic right now, but I just love that because for those who haven't been on B2B, it might seem crazy to never show your price, but that's <laughs> such a guarded secret for it a is lot of It's completely B2B companies. a
1: guarded secret. You want, that- yeah, you
0: wanted to go through the funnel of sales. So I thought that was just mind-blowing that you guys took that step. So I'd love to hear more about that. And it
1: took thing. a lot of internal approvals. Luckily, my manager, our CMO, was very much behind it. And there's a lot of research lately. Product-led growth is not just buying in product and upgrading in product, it's also about the concept of the self-driven buyer, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not just the product-led purchase. It also is around how are they researching, how are they getting the information that they need, and how are they sort of avoiding any and all contact with a salesperson before they get to even thinking about a purchase. And so what we ultimately decided to do here at Demandbase is, even though we are very much a sales-led organization today, we only just recently launched our very first freemium product, and our very first true product-led growth product, so all of our sales was really very sales-led and sales-driven up until this past quarter, basically. But we ultimately decided that we wanted to provide resources on our website and in various forums to have that self-driven buyer given what they need. And what their top questions are, can I afford this? And will this work with my product stack? So you need to focus on things like showing them product tours, Right. Or showing them how things integrate. What integrations do you do so that they can see in real life, like, yes, this will work with me? But the key thing is that the research has shown, and I can't remember exactly where I found this particular negative research, but the research has shown that if you actually show your product price, people trust you more. Whether they end up buying from you is a whole different story, but they trust your website more and they trust you more. And then ultimately, you'll get more of their time and attention, and hopefully given you that much step up to win their business. And so we started, once we saw that, exploring how we could make our prices more transparent, we started first with just showing the packaging. And then we ultimately decided to put together this price estimator tool because it's, our pricing is not as easy as, like you said, a B2C price where you just have a price for a pair of jeans, right? Mm -hmm. $65 or whatever you end up paying. It's not going to happen like that on B2B software. And so we needed to figure out, ask a couple of questions to figure out where to direct someone. And so ultimately we put together this wizard that is this price estimator tool that asks them the right types of questions to allow us to funnel them to a particular price. And somebody taking the quiz might get a different price than somebody else taking the quiz because they've answered the questions in a different way. And that's okay, right? It's not like you have to publish a single price on your website. But because we're asking those questions, you're also teaching them about what's important when you think about this type of software, this go-to-market software, account-based software that we're selling. What are the types of questions that I should be asking as a buyer in terms of building a business case and thinking about how to implement this? And then ultimately, once I see the price, as you finish out that price estimator tool, we then give them other resources like a buying guide or... An RFP kit or a solution that we have to sell ABM to your boss, account-based marketing to your boss. So a business case, a template that they can use to take that back to their boss. And so we basically are teaching as well as we are providing,
0: right? So brilliant. Wow. This is just mind-blowing. Can I ask, how's it going?
1: You know, it's a great question. We launched it. I want to say it was two or three weeks ago. Okay. Early, um, early. So it's early days, <laughs> but I'll find out and I'll let you know.
0: Yeah. Thank yeah. you. That's so exciting. And it, I love that it wasn't just, hey, let's put the price out there. Let's right. think about it really thoughtfully and have this estimator with all of these inputs from the customer. Let's give them tools to sell it internally to their customer. So really turning that self-serve buyer into a self-serve seller at their own company. Exactly. exactly. so smart. Well, speaking of pricing and packaging, you recently did an AMA on ShareBird. So wanted to talk about some of the crop questions that you had on there and kind of go even deeper into this so we can use Absolutely. this as an example or other things. But what would you say in general are some of the best practices when you're implementing a price increase rollout? And I would love to hear your thoughts on this. I recently noticed there's a price increase on my Prime membership. And I don't recall having any <laughs> communication or anything. And I was a little bit like, oh my God, am I going to cancel Prime? Of course I can't. I'm very embedded. No, we're in. I so like, drained into
1: it. But my <laughs> husband and I have actually canceled, we canceled this year. I think we canceled Hulu and we're thinking oh. about canceling some a bunch of these because They're raising the price like crazy.
0: Yeah. And so
1: we've just had to think about like, how many things do we need to actually subscribe to? And you've got to think about it the same way from B2B software, other purchases, especially this year, right? Like Because the economic industry or economy that we're in is so crazy right now, we're getting a lot of companies that are just saying, hey, listen, you're my company of choice. I still want to use your software, but I just can't pay that much or... I just need to take a break or I want to tone it down a little bit. So there's a lot that you have to think about when you're raising prices, because number one, with the inflation, the way that it is, I bet your CFO is asking you to raise prices, Mm -hmm. but your customers are also saying, hey, I can't afford that. So you have to be really intentional when you think about raising prices. And it can't just be say, hey, let's try this out and see how it goes. It's got to be based in facts. And so what I've always found when I'm looking at a price increase is you've got to get as much information as you can. Take a look at past historical information, but also in chunks. So like maybe you might weight data from, you know, sales two years ago less heavily than you might weight sales from this last six months, for example because things do change over time, right? Inflation changes, the economy changes, things change over time. So you have to look at the historical information, but you also have to weight it properly. You should be looking at, is there a different price increase that you need to make for enterprise size companies versus mid-market size companies, right? So you may be able to raise prices more for one of those or not, or a particular industry, or for a particular region? Is there regional price differences that you need to pay attention to? One of my companies, I can't remember which one it was off the top of my head right now, but we had a whole different price book for some of the international companies, or countries rather, because they just Mm -hmm. couldn't take the same level of pricing that the US could. Mm -hmm. And so the same thing should apply when you're thinking about a price increase as well. So I think that's the key is the research Obviously, you've got to look at your competitors, but you should never, ever base your pricing solely on what your competitors are doing. But I think it's good at least to try to get that information. And you can get that from companies that have recently come to you from competitors. You know, if they're open to talking, they don't you can get that from analysts like Gartner and Forrester. They won't give you the exact prices, but you can get them to give you an industry average and average discounting. And they'll give you an idea. You can get it from some of the partner websites out there, like the Salesforce App Exchange or Microsoft has one as well. And they'll often list prices, at least starting prices. And you should know that those are usually higher than the actual selling prices. But so, you know, getting all of that competitive research, as much as you can gather, is useful, even if you ultimately don't match it one for one, right? Which you should never
0: do. That's so interesting. So basically, Get all the historical information that you can, get all the sales information, ask your customers that might have just come over, look at all the app exchanges, everything that you can, but also think about segmentation and how to be really sensitive and such a good point. I don't know when you did this AMA, but... Things are very different right now and they're pretty sensitive. Mm -hmm. So yeah, don't just listen to the CFO blindly. (laughs)
1: Right, the CFO is always going
0: to want you to raise the prices. That's interesting. What about packaging? So how can product marketing initiate these pricing and packaging conversations cross-functionally? So if it's not coming down from the CFO How does product marketing, and this could be a great example is what you just shared with this new G approach, but how do you actually approach it and and talk cross-functionally about it and who's involved with this pricing conversation? I've
1: always found that because product marketing has the best cross-functional relationships that I think personally, product marketing is the best one to own pricing, right? Because we often have both the product side, as we talked about earlier in the show, you know, we've got that tight connection with product management, so you'll know what is coming down the pipeline, what you should maybe be thinking about charging for. Product management should hopefully be talking to the engineering teams to understand the costs, the actual cost of putting this feature out there. Then you have the hands of sales where you're holding, I always talk about Product marketing being an octopus and you're holding all of the eight different hands out, right? So sales you're also holding hands with. And there you're getting things like what's the actual feed on the street word from the salespeople about these prices? Are they resonating? And then a lot of times what you're seeing is you get the infractions from the prospects. You get interactions from the existing customers. So you're gathering all of that information and you're like that best position to be that cross-functional resource to own pricing. So I've always liked to own pricing myself. I do think it's not a single thing. It's a team effort, right? You've got to include your finance people, your legal team. You've got to include sales people and sales leadership. Most of the time for the last couple of years that I've been at base, we've been doing pricing based on more sales leadership and sort of more one-off testing we actually just launched a dedicated pricing tiger team that I work with that has representation from all of the different regions and groups that we focus on mid market and enterprise, international versus non-international. And so we've got that dedicated pricing tiger team that I can use to run things by. But we don't have to. You can have it more ad hoc if you need to as well. But I think that just from a cross-functional perspective, those are the biggest ones. You've also got professional services. They need to be included as well, because you might have a services component to your pricing, or even if you don't have a services component to your pricing, you should think about, are there any additional optional services you can add on top of the packaging to make it more valuable for the customers? So those are the biggest groups. So finance, legal, sales, product, and
0: professional services, and then product marketing, obviously. Got it. That's super helpful. Yeah, I love the case you laid out for why product marketing should own it. What if you don't own it today? Do you have any advice for how you can make that internal business case to sell others on the fact that PMM is really the best owner?
1: Yeah, I think that the biggest thing is really to, again, like we were talking about, when you have to bring your proof and your value to product management to have that relationship and have them trust you is the same thing. You've got to have the value brought to, whoever does own pricing today. So like let's say that finance owns pricing today. You can bring to them the value of understanding the competitive landscape which they might not know about. You can bring to them the value of understanding both the pre and the post sale life cycle side of the house that you see both sides of that they may not see both sides of. You can bring to them the fact that you're involved in the product roadmap and from the product management team what's coming down the pipeline in terms of features that they might not be as aware of to be able to change the pricing appropriately. So if you've got other groups that own pricing today, you can, again, demonstrate your value as a product marketer by bringing up those things that you're most interested in and and positioned to, to have value in.
0: That's such a good point. And I think that pricing can be really intimidating if you haven't done it before, but the way that you've talked about it today and laying out a framework, bringing those PMM expertise areas to it, thinking about it not just as pricing, but pricing and packaging makes it a lot less less scary and a lot more approachable. So I really appreciate your perspective on that and getting people to actually say, I should take a stab at this. This is something that I want to do. So I think it's often the last check mark on the product marketing portfolio that people have, but it shouldn't be scary. It should just be the same way. It's not.
1: Yeah. And that's absolutely right. People do get scared about it because I feel like they fear, Hey, if I don't set the price right, I can't ever change it again, but that's not true. Right? Like that's something that you just have to get past. It's not like the prices don't, yes, I wouldn't go ahead. Once you have a set model in place, I wouldn't go ahead and change it every week. But while you're learning about, while you're testing something out, you absolutely can change it. And you can say, hey, listen, I want to test this out with like five salespeople. With these two salespeople, I'm going to test out what my current price is. With these two salespeople, I'm going to test out a higher price, let's say. And with this last salesperson from my group of five salespeople, I'm going to test out something completely different, like maybe a totally new model. And you can say, hey, listen, with these five salespeople, give me two of your deals that you're working on right now. And let's just work together to get these testing out there. And I think that's the key thing. You shouldn't have to be scared of pricing because it's not something that you have to jump into and make a decision and not have the testing and the data and the research that that you can fall back on. So, that's the biggest thing is make sure that you've got data, even if you have to create that data yourself by running a tiger team or a focus group or a, a something like that, get the data, analyze the data, and then you can have that a better way to both bring it cross functionally and also to leverage it
0: going forward. I love that. Well, thank you so much for sharing your expertise on all the things, but especially on pricing and packaging today. I can't believe it, but it's already time for our lightning round question. Okay. <laughs> so. First up, who have been your strongest mentors, product marketing or otherwise?
1: So interestingly enough, my current manager, our CMO, John Miller, is one of my mentors and has been for a long time. He and I worked together back in 99 to 2005, and he was actually the one that gave me my first opportunity to switch from at that time, it was professional services into product management. And then ultimately, I later switched into product marketing. And so John has always been a strong mentor of mine, both from just a product marketing perspective and also at navigating the b two b software market and particularly the Martech and sales tech marketplace. So, He's been a strong one for me. And then I have to look back to another old manager of mine, a gentleman by the name of Dave Panek, who now works at a product marketing consulting company. And he's just been a great supporter of my career over the years and always a great person to bounce things off. Looking, obviously, women in product marketing, I think one of the things that I've been missing from a mentor is having a true woman product marketing mentor I haven't had that as much as I probably would like to have. So I try to play that role now for people that have worked for me because I haven't had it as much in my career.
0: Well, that's what it's all about. This whole podcast, this whole community. Exactly. Thank you for giving back today and sharing your expertise and we'll have to get you connected with some of the other women in product marketing from the show. Happy to, (laughs) happy to. All right. This is kind of hard to boil down, but what would you say is the one thing that has been most important to grow your career?
1: I mean, I think it's probably the work life balance. You mentioned you're a mom. I am a mom as well. I think you've got to take everything with a grain of salt. You know, you do have the license to take a step back if you need to and to not go on that business trip if you need to go see your daughter's performance or something like that. There's a couple of things I've missed during my son's eighth grade graduation. I missed a big trip, but hey, I made that choice. And so I think that you have to know, especially as a woman, because I don't think that unfortunately it's not as gray area as much for men, right? But you have to be able to take that and know that even if you have to slow your career for six months or a year, whatever it ends up being you'll get back on the swing of things and it will all come around and work out in the right place later. So I think that's probably the
0: biggest thing that I've learned. That's wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing that and the boundaries and all the trade-offs and yeah. you've obviously been very successful in your career. So it's great to hear that you've been able to do that and be there for your kids and also. And
1: now of them's now in college, so it's hopefully oh. I succeeded. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's what you want, right? Hey, exactly. They made it that far.
1: That's they made it far.
0: Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, in this post pandemic world, how do you network? Are you doing that yet? Are you virtually networking? Are you into this? What's your approach?
1: Yeah, I tried to join as many things as I can. Like, So we're part of a couple of VC investors that we have over the X number of years that Demandbase has been around. We have some VC meetups with the other marketers on those portfolio companies. So I try to take advantage of those meetups. I try to go to... Dreamforce for Salesforce and meet people there and just try to do that as much as I can. And now lately, obviously with the pandemic, it's been more virtual. And so you get these Slack groups that you've got going on. It's not great, but I think it's as best as we have for nowadays. So
0: yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, I'm exploring myself all the different ways, the many Slack groups, things. Yes. (laughs) But the problem
1: with that always is like, when do you turn it off? Right? Yeah.
0: Yes, definitely. (laughs) All right. Well, last question for you. Why product marketing?
1: For me, like I said, I, I had made from product management to product marketing. It was because I liked the ability to see where things were landing more than I saw in product management. And so for product management, I'd put a release out there and I would hope and pray that I got some customers to talk to about how it went, right? But in product marketing, I actually see all the steps and the sausage making that goes into that. So the marketing campaigns that we have to put forward for a release, the salespeople that are talking about that release and how are they selling that new product or that new feature that we've got, the analysts that ultimately make that particular product area. So from product marketing, for me, it's how are things being ultimately out received at the end of the line. And so I like that you can see hopefully to the end and create a new end if you need to for some place to land. So that's why so I, marketing
0: for me. I love it. And I'm personally so glad you made the jump. And I know our listeners are too. And I'm sure your team at Base is thrilled that you're a product marketing leader as well. But Jackie, thank you. This was such a rich conversation. I'm so happy to have met you and have you on the show today. Thank you so much.
1: Me too, Mary. Thank you so much for having me. This has been super fun.
0: This show is produced by Sharebird, the knowledge sharing platform for the fastest growing teams. It's the place to get on-demand answers to your questions and learn from leaders in the top of their field. Want more advice and insights? Head to sharebird.com.